tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, Hello. Once again, the readings are very interesting. So, these are, you got to love the Bible. It's got everything. I re- it's a great book. Well, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit that shall be created, and you shall renew the hearts, that you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there, let's let's open the big book on the coffee table. And we start the book of the books of the Maccabees. Well, briefly, let us speak of the books of the Maccabees. Uh, they, uh, it's hard to kind of pin them down. Uh, they're part of what some people call the, uh, uh, the deuterocanonical book, books, but, um, they're not due to, I, they're not, we don't regard them as, as I said the other day about wisdom, we don't regard them as deuterocanonical at all. Um, the, the books of the Maccabees are, are a, um, oh, what do you, what do you want to say? They're, they're, they're historical. They don't seem to be religious at all. I mean, they're about religious themes and there are some very beautiful, uh, passages in them, but, Today's reading kind of gives it away. In those days there appeared in Israel men who were breakers of the law. Thereupon they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom. The king wrote to his whole kingdom. Wait, where's God? In the 15th day of the month of Chislev, the king erected the horrible abomination uh, upon the altar of burnt offerings. Okay, okay, this is great history. Uh, no prophecies, no, you know, it just, it, it's just, it's stories from a period in Jewish life. So we will have to look at that period of Jewish life to figure out what's going on. So in the second century BC, that's the, the hundreds you got first century BC is, you know, 99 BC to the year one kind of thing. Oddly enough, there is no year zero, but 99 to uh, one, that's the first century BC. So the second century BC would be 199 BC to, well, 101 BC. I suppose that's how you'd mark it. Um, 
you got to understand the background. Uh, this is going on in the reign of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Uh, he was a descendant of uh, one of the generals of Alexander the Great. Uh, he was he was the 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 uh, son of Antiochus the Third or Antiochus the Great, uh, who was the who was preceded by the um, uh, the Seleucids, and this was the Seleucid Empire. Three hundred. Uh, Pay attention. There may be a quiz. I see you in the back. <laughs> Pay attention. I'm kidding. That's I'm reverting to my old professor days. But uh, about 300 BC. Well, 300 BC, pretty precisely. Thank you. Take it with a grain of salt. Exactly. Uh, 300 BC. Alexander the Great, a Macedonian Greek, decided to end the Persian problem by conquering the Persian Empire, and he created an empire that reached from Greece down into Egypt, and then east all the way into India. I mean, this this was amazing. And he, he didn't just, you know, conquer it and say, well, there you go. No, he settled it. There Were there how many cities named after Alexander? The 20, There were 26 Alexandrias. The one we know about is Alexandria in Egypt. But there was two Alexanders in Afghanistan. There was, I believe, an Alexander in what is today India and in Pakistan. Uh, the Greeks moved in and settled with people in these these Central Asian Greek kingdoms that nobody even talks about or knows about. These Central Asian Greek kingdoms lasted for 300 years. Uh, this was an important uh, element of, of Asian history that people don't talk about. Uh, it's theorized that a lot of uh, Buddhist art, for instance, was influenced by Greek art because of the presence of the Greeks. There was a great shift in the portrayal of, of Buddha, that sort of thing. Uh, this happened also in the Holy Land. Uh, Alexander went through the Holy Land, uh, apparently, and um, um, the the uh, when he well when when Alexander died, he didn't leave a clear heir, and there were three generals. The two most prominent of them was Seleucus and Ptolemy, and they were arguing over who would be his successor. And the Athenian custom, or not the Athenian, the Greek custom was that the successor had the job of burying the uh, uh, the deceased monarch, and so Ptolemy managed to <laughs> to steal the body of Alexander and bury it in Alexandria. But Seleucus went to the city of Antioch, uh, or went went to, to Syria, and I believe that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, forgive me, I'm a little vague on this. I think he may have been the founder of the city of Antioch, but he, he created a great empire, the Seleucid Empire. And you'll see this referred to in Scripture as the Syrian Greeks, or the Greeks. They were a hybrid culture of people who were indigenous to Assyria, who would have been, they would have been, um, what's the word, um, uh, Middle Eastern, Semitic, uh, the Canaanites, the, the Syro, you hear about the Syro-Phoenicians. Uh, Phoenicia was a, a, a Semitic country, which now we would talk about as Lebanon, or at least part of Lebanon, and, but they, they spoke a, a, a Semitic language. Uh, 
and and the they had been taken over by Greek culture and uh, Greek was spoken calmly. Now to bring it to the Holy Land, uh, and this is kind of why I'm bringing this up today. Uh, the Holy Land was very Greek. There was a cluster of cities founded by these these Syrian Greeks who were really Semitic genetically and partly Greek and worshipped Semitic gods with Greek names or associating Semitic gods with Greek names. But they founded that area of the Decapolis. If you see in the scriptures, the Decapolis, that means the 10 cities. And it was a large Greek-speaking colony in the midst of a Semitic population. And uh, it's a place where things Jewish and Semitic mingled with things Hellenic and Western. Uh, but the cities were thoroughly Greek in their constitution. They were, uh, they were polis. Uh, a polis was a Greek city. It was a government unto itself. And the governing model of these cities was Greek. So uh, I'm saying all this because, you know, you watch the Bible pageant movies and everybody's dressed up looking like Semitic potentates. I remember even in The Passion of the Christ, which is an amazing, amazing movie. It's hard to get through, believe me. Um, but Herod, uh, Herod, uh, is portrayed Herod is it I think it's Herod Agrippa who was it Herod Agrippa or I forget which Herod Jesus was brought to he is portrayed as a ridiculous oriental potentate with all sorts of ridiculous oriental courtiers around him he would have been very Greek this is something people don't realize that another thing the the, the kids of the Herods the Herod family were raised and uh, educated in Rome on the Palatine Hill in the house of Augustus and the other emperors. Caligula, the emperor, was a great friend of, of uh, I'm sure this one was Herod Agrippa, um, that sort of thing. Uh, he was a great friend of, of the emperor Claudius, and he probably spoke Greek like everybody else in Rome. What? Yes, at least half the population of Rome spoke Greek just like half the population of Chicago might speak Spanish or a big section of it speak Polish. You know, that this was a time of, of fluid movement of ethnicities. And to be Greek was more a cultural aspiration than a genetic reality. Um, the, the, when we, when in the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul, or rather, St. Peter is talking about the widows of the Greeks, or St. Luke, rather, is talking about the widows of the Greeks and the widows of the, of the, of the Jews. He was talking about the Greek speakers. The word is Hellenists. Uh, the, a, a Greek was a Hellene. Hellas was Greece. And Hellenes were Greeks, real live Greeks from Greece. In fact, is in, in Alexandrian Egypt, uh, indigenous Egyptians were not allowed to live in certain sections of the city. Only 100% Greeks could live there, the Hellenes. But there is this other group called the Hellenisti, who were Greek wannabes or Greek culturally. This is the milieu of Christ. I have, you know, it is quite possible, and I would go so far as to say quite probable that Jesus spoke Greek. Not because he was the son of God, because he grew up in Nazareth, which was two miles away from a, a Greek-speaking city, Sipporis. Uh, this is always a, a marvel to many Americans that, that there are people who speak two and three languages. 
uh, it's no problem if you're. I remember the story of a the the grandfather of a classmate of mine in seminary. Well, he was a year behind me in seminary. His grandfather spoke twenty six languages and had never been to school. He was a conductor on the Trans Siberian Railway, and he could converse in twenty six different languages. It's amazing what the human brain can do, and. In his, in his perfect humanity, I, I don't think it would have been too tough for Jesus to speak Greek. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had a little Latin too, but Latin was not much spoken by Romans outside of Rome. Uh, one of the insults that you could level at, at a, a fellow uh, Roman was, he has very little Greek. Half the population of Rome, city of near a million at the time of Christ, after Christ got to a million, um, Half the population, I'm sure, spoke Greek as a first language and didn't know a word of Latin. So that was the world into which the gospel came. And that's why the Holy Spirit decided to write the New Testament in Greek. So that's the background. And now that I give you the background, why do we actually look at the section of Scripture? The only thing I really want to say about this is if you read, you know, why is the book of Maccabees in the Bible? Martin Luther thought it shouldn't be. It didn't It didn't have anything to do with uh, Christ and, you know, and it said things like you should pray for the dead. Um, why, why is it in there? Oh, I'm very glad it's in there for our times. I'm very glad it's in there. We're looking at what's going on in the world situation, the horror that is happening in the Holy land. You know, it's just so sad to me. Uh, Christmas is not going to really happen in Bethlehem this year. They're taking the lights down, the trees down, um, uh, and there will be no tourists. Um, uh, you know there'll be re- the religious observation of Christmas, but none of the none of the um, the bells and whistles. Uh, uh, one of those experiences that you always remember would be to go to the Bethlehem for Christmas. It's a celebration with marching bands and and uh, great decorations and festivities and the endless buying of religious tchotchkes that that you take home and say, "Why did I buy this?" But uh, it won't happen this year because of the strife. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not picking sides in this. It's, you know, it's just, it's just devastating. The, 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 the loss of life and, and, and the abuse of human beings. I mean, I don't want to go there. Uh, You know, I, I don't like to talk politics on this show. I just, I find it, well, in this, this book of Maccabees, one of the reasons I don't want to talk politics. Thank God this book is in the Bible. Because it reminds us that this nonsense has been going on for at least 2,500 years. And I think we could probably pin it to 4,000 years. The Holy Land is a land torn by strife. Now, this is an important thing, believe it or not, in terms of this gospel. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging And Jesus was passing by. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. He called him the son of David. Who was the son of David? The son of David was thought of as a military person. The Jews believed and still believe in two messiahs. And there's a variation on the theme. There is the Messiah, son of Joseph, in in the Talmud. You read Messiah, son of Joseph who prepares the way for the victorious uh, conquering son of David, who will come at the end of times. He will restore Israel, uh, um, and, and, and that 
the age will be over. It's the job of of the of the the, the Messiah, son of Joseph, to be uh, uh, the ingatherer of Israel. Uh, he will prepare the way, he, and he will die in battle against the enemy. And he prepares the way for the son of David. Now, the Essenes and the priestly groups believed in two messiahs, but there was son of David, a military hero, who prepared the way for the son of Aaron, a priestly messiah. And the real importance was the, the life of the temple. So what do you got? You got Jesus of Nazareth, who is son of Joseph. I used to point that out to Rabbi Lefkowitz, and he'd say, no, 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 it's different. Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, then you have the son of David, and then you have the great high priest. Those are the three possibilities for the two messiahs. But in all of that, the son of David is a military hero, and that's what they were looking for. And this blind man has heard that the Messiah is coming by and he's able to perceive something that others aren't perceiving, that the son of David, his battle is a spiritual one. At least that's the way I look at this. And, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, let me see. And the fact is he could already see in terms of truth. He understood who Jesus was. And they're telling him, shut up, and be quiet. Uh, you know, don't bother this. Don't bother the Messiah. Well, uh, um, he goes on. Jesus goes on to say, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. He doesn't say I've saved you. And he doesn't say I've healed you. This guy's asking for healing and he gets salvation. Your faith has saved you. Now you're sick of hearing this, but you know what I'm saying? I say it all the time. The word faith, whenever you see the, the verb believe or the noun faith in the scriptures, you can safely translate them as trust. There's a great deal of difference between belief and to trust the verb and a great deal of difference between faith and the, the, the noun to trust in our language. For us to believe is something that happens in the head. To have faith happens in the head. But trust is in the head, the heart, the hands, and the feet. Trust is a relationship. I trust these things are true because you have told me. You know, we use the word believe to mean to have a, well, you know, it's a reasonable guess. There's something called no, notional faith. In other words, yeah, I'll assent to the notions. I think Jesus could have risen from the dead. And I think, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I guess that's the body and blood of Christ. I don't think about it much. That's called notional faith, and it won't save you. And a lot of us who work in the business of religion, because we're very busy about the things of God, we are reduced to a notional faith instead of that trust, that faith that's a relationship. And you're in trouble when that happens. And looking at, at this first reading, sometimes... Uh, we come to expect what they expected, you know, that, that God's going to solve the problems and make life in this world a good thing. Jesus didn't say that. He said, not as the world gives peace do I give my peace to you. That's why that's enshrined in the Mass. One of the Messianic expectations was world peace. Well, there's no world peace. Yes, there is. If you know God, if you know Christ, you can have peace if you trust him. 
without trust, it is impossible to please God. That's without faith. That's the letter of the Hebrews. And, you know, I say, I believe in God. Barely. I barely believe in God. And I'm, I'm not just being pious here. Every time I worry about something, every time I think it's over, I'm doomed. This is doomed. That won't work out. Instead of what Padre Pio said, trust God. And what did Padre Pio say? Trust God and get some sleep. You know, when I lay awake at night worried about this or worried about that, what's going to happen? What's, you know, to expect a Messiah who solves your problems in this world or the world's problems, you're not seeing the way this blind man saw. You're only seeing part of it. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. That means without trust. Ask yourself, is your faith notional or is it relational? Do you relate to Jesus as as the longing of your heart? Or, oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I, I guess this stuff is true. I'll go to church. Not good enough. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with letters. And uh, you can call in. The phones will be open at 888-914-9149. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. When it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, All right. there'll be days like this. Everything falls into place All like right. the flick of a switch. Well, oh, that's true. Told me, <laughs> well, like this. Mama did tell us all. All right. Well, that said, let us go to letters. This is a good one, and this will probably, uh, I feel a sermon coming on here. This is from Dylan. In John 3, 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus that except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is it possible to be born of water without the Spirit? Is it possible to be born of the Spirit without water? You know, Protestants and Catholics alike, we look at so many of the texts of Scripture as... As law, you know, uh, you know, well, or is worse than that as a chemical formula when they're poetry. Um, you know, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read that we are bound by the sacraments. God is not. So is it possibly born of water without the spirit? Is it possibly born of the spirit without water? Well, let's look at the past. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and the wind. What? Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, that's what spirit means in Greek. It means that in Latin. Uh, it 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 it's a generic kind of word for wind, pneuma, and things like pneumatic drills and all that. The you know the P N E U the pneumatic drills are pneumonia. These have to do with breath and with wind. Pneumatic tools work on air power, not electricity. Um, so this is this is important to understand. Jesus is saying something very beautiful, that unless you're born of water and wind, there's a wonderful old uh, Pete Seeger song from my hippie days, um, uh, God Bless the Grass. 
uh, you know, one of the lines is, the concrete looks so solid, the concrete gets tired of what it has to do. The concrete breaks and the grass grows through. God bless the grass. What is grass? It is just sort of green, nicely structured water. I bet grass is 90% water, but it can break concrete. It just takes a while. Um, the wind pounding on a rock uh, will, especially if it's it's wind and water, you go to the seashore and see, see wind and water pounding on rocks, the wind and water in the long run is going to win. The concrete, that's real. It's solid. No, it's not. It will be washed away by wind and water. So Jesus says, unless you're born of wind and water, the, the covenant of Moses was written in stone. The covenant of the Messiah, Jesus, is written on human hearts. Um, so so what's Jesus saying? Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, people talk about being born again or being born of water and the spirit. And uh, I remember a, a preacher who had served as a military, uh, in the military as a medical assistant, and he assisted at quite a number of live births. And this idea of being born of wind and water, or being born again, he said, this preacher wisely said, Catholics and Protestants, they get it all wrong. Nobody is born except with a lot of uh, leaking and screaming and, and, and pain. You know, childbirth is is quite an event, and uh, um, this idea that somehow, oh, I felt Jesus in my heart, I'm born again. No, you were spiritually conceived. Conception is meant to be joyous and ecstatic in the spiritual as well as in the natural. Being born again is leaving a place of safety and entering into a place of vulnerability and growth. So. Do you realize that you were alive nine months before you were born? When people talk about a wonderful religious experience and say they've been born again, no, they haven't. They've been conceived spiritually, and many of them die in the womb because they never enter into the growth that the Lord has for them. Uh, so this idea of being born of water in the Spirit what Jesus is saying is, as the wind and the water, as the water responds to the wind, so you must be born from above. And the word is not again, it's ana, which is going to come up in our word of, day, of the day again, which means above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know my crazy definition of kingdom. It isn't a place. It isn't, it isn't a time. Well, it can involve a place and time, but it isn't primarily those things. It is primarily the nature of a king. You cannot perceive God's royal nature unless you are born from the stuff that is above. If you are stuck in stone, you're never going to perceive that, that, that the Messiah, the glorious son of David, you're never going to perceive that that glorious son of David is a Jewish carpenter who was born in a barn and died under arrest. I mean, that's crazy. We worship a Jewish carpenter who was executed by the state. Why would you do that? Because it's true. He changes lives and he's alive. You see, unless you're born from what is above, wind and water. The, 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 uh, so this is wonderful poetry. And it is symbolized and made real in the sacrament of baptism. 
Can someone go to heaven without being baptized? Again, we're bound by the sacraments. God is not. I have a feeling if someone refuses baptism, says, well, I don't need it. Well, they're refusing a gift of God and are not in any way born from above. Uh, you know, the, and, and the, the safe and sure way that we know to to enter into the fullness of what God has is through the sacrament of baptism. So if anybody's listening and think, I don't think baptism is important, get baptized if you're not. Jesus wants us to do this, and he wanted us to do this for a reason, in order, in order that we might see the, the kingdom of God, that we might one day behold him face to face. But bringing it back to the gospel today, that blind beggar saw more than the sighted people around him because he could see in Jesus without physical sight, this is God in the flesh. Have pity on me, son of David. That's what it means to be born again. To be born from above is to be, is to be empowered by the presence of God. Uh, I often talk about the Holy Spirit as, as though it's not a good theological definition. I think the Holy Spirit is, is the first person of the Trinity you meet you perceive the presence of God. You go into a quiet church and you know God is right there. There's somebody there. That's the Holy Spirit, which has made possible Christ in the tabernacle. Uh, that when you sense the presence of God, that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Not, he's not just an experience. So, so I, I caution you. He's a real person who, with whom you can have real dialogue, with whom you should have real dialogue. But this idea of being born of the wind and of the water, it's poetry that is gorgeous and it is fleshed out in the sacraments. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but we can take this passage and we can use it as if it were something from a cookbook. It's better to think of it as something from a book of perfect and beautiful poetry. So I don't know if that helps, but well, there you go. Okay, let's see. Let me look at the time. Let me do another letter. Hold on. Let me Let me... Okay, this is someone who, who wrote in, uh, Francis, uh, who's really, you know, she's thinking about Catholicism, and she's looking at all of the, the theological and organizational turmoil in which we now, uh, that we're experiencing now in the church. Um, you know, all I can say, Francis, is if, you're if you would think of becoming Catholic because of the clergy, that's a really bad reason to be a Catholic. But if you experience Christ, especially in the Eucharist and in the sacraments, become a Catholic. Um, you know, look at the 12 apostles. Boy, did they have their difficulties. People were mad at Peter because he thought he was a big cheese, and well, he was. And then there was Judas, my gosh. Uh, that that Jesus picked some real clunkers to be the founders of, of, of the, the institution of the church. That shouldn't surprise you, because as the Spanish philosopher Unamuno said, God writes straight with crooked lines, that the faith we have in, in this, this community, which is the church, over the course of 2,000 years, in the long run, it has been very, very, um, God has been very faithful to it. And though we are in difficulties at the moment, and I, I say that no matter which side of the equation you may be on, and there shouldn't be sides, I mean, but invariably we humans try to politicize everything, and it's foolish to do so because this is God's bride. If you see the church as an organization run by men, 
you're going to be really disappointed, no matter what men are running it, no matter what their theological or political disposition is. But if you see the church as the family, the bride of Christ, the beloved of God, who he cares for, despite the fact that we, the clergy, sometimes don't care for her nearly as much as we should, well, be a Catholic. Be Catholic, because God has been faithful. I recommend uh, Crocker's book, uh, Power or Triumph, The Power and the Glory of the Catholic Church. His whole thesis is, you know, uh, the good old days, well, things aren't like they used to be, and then again, they never were. The Catholic Church has always been in a battle, um, and always will be in a battle. And, and uh, uh, sometimes it seems to be losing, but the Lord has always pulled the fat out of the fire, and I think he will until he comes again. So I would encourage you to, uh, especially to, to read the treasury of the communion of the saints. Read what saints have read. Read some Teresa of Avila. Read some, some Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, uh, read some Thomas Aquinas. And uh, uh, read, read the history, the beauty, the, the, the contribution of the saints. And I think you'll understand what I mean. You know, every era in the church has had its difficulties, and every year in the church will have its difficulties, but she is still the bride of Christ and he loves her. And so do I. All right. That said, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And then with the phones are open, plenty of lines are open. The voice of my is telling me 888 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please, don't fence me in. I just turn me loose. Let Goodness. Goodness. When I was young, I hung around with people who rode horses, and my experience of horses makes me like cars. For all you horse people out there, well, there's some people who horses just, they see us coming, especially when we're not petite. But that has nothing to do with anything. Let's go to the word of the day. Well, the word of, the, oh, we got line, we got lines open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. In today's reading in 18, chapter 18, uh, verse 20 or 42 of the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus told him, have sight, your faith has saved you. Well, I explained the word faith. It really means trust, but have sight. That's not exactly what the Greek text says. The Greek text is wonderful. The word for that they translate as receive sight is anablepson, anablepson, which ana means up, as I said earlier. And what Jesus is saying is raise your eyes, look up. 
In other words, look at me. Look up. He's the guy's looking down. Look up. He received his sight by seeing Jesus. Look up. I think that's a glorious word, anablepo. Anablepo is is how you pronounce it in, in, in Greek. Look up. He didn't say, recover your sight. He said, in essence, Jesus was saying, look at me. I think that's so lovely. Anablepson. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. Anablepson. All right. Let us uh, move on to phone calls. Hello. You talk. I'll listen. Again, we have a number of lines open at 888-914-9149. Judy, what can I do for you? Hey, Father. I have a friend that goes to a non-denom church. Yeah, yeah. of course, she misses the Eucharist. Yeah. And that pastor in that church tells her, well, he could give her the Eucharist. Oh. But I don't think he could. I don't think so either. Well, he could give her bread and wine, but I don't think he could give her Jesus, Jesus' body and blood. So you tell me. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. You see, what's going on here, and I always point this out, sacraments minister to the whole person, to our spirit, to our soul, to our body, and that's why... We talk about the elements involved in the sacrament, that there are physical things involved in the sacrament. There's oil, there's water, there's there's a, a, a blessing in, in the sacrament of confirmation. There's physicality involved. And I was ordained by somebody, a bishop, Bishop Archbishop Cody, Cardinal Cody, who was in turn ordained by somebody, who was ordained by somebody, who was ordained by somebody who was ordained by Christ. And there's a chain all the way back to Jesus. That's a physical chain. And that chain is unbroken. We call that the apostolic succession. And we believe it's necessary for one of the elements of the sacraments, their physicality, especially the physicality of the sacraments, for instance, of of, of uh, holy orders, of, of the anointing of the sick, uh, the Eucharist, confirmation, that there's a touching involved. Uh, and and the the, the non Catholics, uh, you know, with the exception, of course, of our Orthodox uh, friends, uh, don't have that apostolic succession. They also don't believe what we believe about the Eucharist. The Orthodox believe what we believe that it is the sacrifice of Calvary represented in an unbloody way, that it is truly a sacrifice, and that it truly is flesh and blood. The the non-denominational minister who believes that, I've never met one. Um, so, yeah, they don't they don't believe it is what we believe it is, and that's another thing that 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 speaks to our soul. That a priest who's consecrating must must intend to do what the church intends to do, uh, which is to bring about that physical transformation. So, no, that that she can't receive the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, from some, anyone except an ordained, uh, a validly ordained priest of the of the Eastern Church or the Church, uh, the, the, the the Eastern Churches or the Western Churches. So, does that answer your question? Yes, but what about at a Lutheran Church? They don't believe what we believe, and they change the ceremony of ordination. It's, it's not an unbroken ah, thing for okay. them. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah they believe okay. they don't believe that bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, but that somehow the body and blood of Christ are in are mixed in with bread and wine. And 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 Luther did not believe what we believe. His followers certainly didn't. So no, we believe that only the the Orthodox churches, Church of the East, and and uh, the Western churches have valid orders. So there you go. Okay, you so, you answered right. my question. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thank God bless, you. Judy. Thanks for calling Same in. Let's there. go to Jay. Amen. Let's go to Jay from, from uh, oh, he's calling from Somerdale, New Jersey. What can I do for you, Jay? Yeah, hi. Good afternoon. Uh, question yeah. for you on, on the ceremony of the Mass. I know during the penitential rite, you see people uh, pounding their heart three times with their mm-hmm. fists and yeah. knuckles. Now, yeah. I've seen an older generation, you know, my next generation, older than me and so forth, when they are actually consecrating the bread and wine, that they, you know, and the bells are ringing, they also do the same thing. So I'm wondering if that's some kind of a ceremonial thing that's been discontinued, or does that have some other meaning? No, it was a custom, and it's a custom that when I go to Mass, you know, when I'm not offering the Mass, when I go to Mass, even if I'm celebrating a Mass, I will do that. And the, what you, there were words that had come to you. would say, my Lord, my God, my Lord, my God, my Lord, my God. We're imitating the... Uh, uh, the confession of St. Thomas in the upper room where he, where Jesus said, put your fingers in, in the wound of my, in my fingers and my hands and put your fist into my side. Uh, he said, my Lord, my God. And he was repentant for his lack of faith. And so that gesture of pounding your chest uh, is, is a gesture of repentance of, in a sense of, of penance. That's what it is. And I think it's a beautiful custom that in which I still indulge. So does that answer your question, Jay? Yeah, it seems like the, the, my generation and younger, they didn't teach that when we were in you know, elementary school. And I'm wondering if that's, yeah. something that's kind of like an optional thing that they... Oh, it's optional. It's optional, uh, so but it's beautiful. You know, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to respond to a miracle. I'm not worthy of this miracle. My Lord, my God, my Lord, my God. That's the idea. So I hope that helps a little. All right. God bless, Jay. We lost a, a lot of beautiful customs in the 60s, things like Gregorian chant, and we went to such glorious music as the My Little Pony Glory. I'm not bitter. Sherry, what can I do for you from Helena, Montana, a beautiful city? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Father, I'd like to ask two questions about angels. Uh, first of all, when yes. we're in heaven, will we be able to see them because they're spirits? I know they manifest oh, uh, on earth, but can you see them in, in just the spirit? I have no doubt that we will see angels. We will be, we will be, uh, uh, we are spirits. <laughs> you know, we're spirits in, yeah. that are incarnate in our bodies. But scripture says that we shall know as we are known. So if God can see the angels, I think he'll let us see the angels. And do they laugh? I have no yeah. scriptural basis for this. Maybe there is one in the book of Tobit, but. I have no doubt they laugh. I think that the life oh, of an good. angel is a life of joy because they behold the presence of God. So maybe when they look yeah. at us, they don't laugh quite as much, but I have no doubt the angels laugh. I know they sing. There are choirs of angels, so they must sing too. Yes. So there you go. Yes. Um, yes. Okay, thank you, Father. All right, Sherry. God bless. Let's God go bless to Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you. Let's go to Chris from Sacramento. Uh, good morning, Father Simon. I'm one of these strange people that likes snakes. I have a pet boa constrictor oh, named Fifth. And so a I'm very curious about 
Yeah, the story in um, Acts where St. Paul is shipwrecked in Malta and a viper, but there are no snakes on Malta, neither venomous nor non-venomous, nor are there any sea snakes in the Mediterranean. So I'm just curious how that could be. That is interesting. I, I've never, I've never wrestled with that. Uh, let, let's see, let's see if I can find something. The, uh, um, the snake may have come along. It said when they gathered wood, there was a snake in the wood. Now, uh, um, the, uh, it may be well, possible. I, yeah, I suppose it could have come over on the ship from like Tunisia or something. Yeah. Maybe, but... Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they, they were kind of, um, uh, uh, they were kind of amazed by this, that he was bit by a snake. And he says, surely this man must have done something awful, uh, because there are no snakes in Malta. And there's a tradition that, uh, Paul, like St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland, St. Paul drove the snakes out of Malta, but <laughs> there's no real documentation for that. And it's quite possible that, that, uh, the islands called Malta were were different at that time. That there might have been, uh, uh, he might have been, uh, uh, one of the theories is it was the island of Melita on which he may have been shipwrecked, which is very much like Malta. Uh, the the idea of, of Melita being um, uh, a different uh, place than, than, than what is today called Malta. I, I think that's probably, uh, the more, um, uh, the more reasonable, uh, explanation. Uh, so th that, that might be so it's, uh, uh Malta was, was Melito was the ancient name of Malta, but it also was a small Island in the Adriatic now called Meleda. Uh, so that might have to do with it. I don't know if that answers the question, but we're saying he landed on Malta. No, he landed on an island called Melita, which was the ancient name of Malta. Does that help a little? Well, it's an interesting thought. Thank you so much, Father. Yeah, it's it's okay. possible. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to research this a little more because that's kind of interesting. I know that that. Um, uh, he landed on an isle. You know, Malta. Well, I'm gonna have to really look at it. That. Um, that that um, this was a this wasn't a landing it was a wreck, and it could have been on that 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 island. Who knows? Well, I'll I'll try and research it. Maybe get back to it. Maybe we'll make it a word of the day. Thanks for calling in. It's an interesting interesting idea. All right, let's see. Um, who? Let's go to Ed. Ed, what can I do for you? Father, can you explain the? Um, you, I heard it before, but I forgot. When you, your your children will be like olive trees around your, yes. your table? Yes. Okay, can you explain that? Yes, that's one of the psalms that, that your children are like olive trees around your table. Uh, that, that uh, well, uh, what, you're calling my children potted plants? No, that, that olive trees are funny. They don't yield a harvest. They don't yield fruit, I think. Uh, for, uh, the first 15 years, um, and then they really don't have a crop around, around, uh, they don't have a crop until I think like 30 or 40 years. Uh, that's a quote from, from, uh, Psalm 12, uh, or 128, 
uh, verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine and your sons like young olive trees around your table. In other words, you're not going to get anything out of these these potted plants who are eating you out of house and home for the first 15 years. <laughs> and you're not going to get much out of them until they're all grown up. That's To me, that's the symbolism of it, that, that they're olive trees around your table. Does that help a little? Okay. All right. Yeah. About the potted plant. Yeah. yeah I, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thank you. You see, you see that to plant an olive tree is an investment in the future. And that's the same thing with children. You know, okay. we don't have children because we're going to get something out of them. It's because this is the right thing to do to give life to the future. So I think that's important. Well, thanks for calling in. And God bless. Okay. All right. Let's okay. go to thank Leanne you, from, you're welcome. Let's go to Leanne from Highland, Indiana. What can I do for you, Leanne? Hi, Father. Please translate this German. I collect rosaries. It's one that I found. I think it's a spell yeah. of mysteries. I I flunked freshman. Anyway, <laughs> it says Schmerzehefte <laughs> Mutter. How do you spell it? How do you spell that first word? S C H E R Z A F T F T. Mutter, I know C- that's mother. C H E R. S. What is it? C H. Yeah. E R. I need E R. Z H F T E. It's like Schmerzhafte. Schmerzhafte. Hmm. This is, are you sure there's an H in there? That sounds kind of odd. Okay. Uh, it's a Scherzer. So, uh, okay, hmm. here with the mic, 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 I don't know. Your, your okay. German is, is as bad as mine, frankly. Um, uh, uh, oh, the word Scherz in German, however, means, um, Oh gosh, what does Scherz mean in German? Uh, uh, Scherz, Scherz, Scherz. It means it. It, it means uh, the Scherz is a, is a joke. You know, can you send it to me at uh, what's my address? R uh, Simon at Relevant Radio. Yeah. Or just Simon at Relevant Radio. That's my. Send me that. Well, you send me pictures, but if you could send me the actual spelling of it, I'll look it up for you. Uh, if it's Scherz, a Scherz is a is a is a joke, and I don't think that's what it means. So, we'll we'll figure it out. All right. Oh, speaking of figuring things out, Drew is coming up. <laughs> we'll stop speaking in tongues here and move on to Drew. <laughs> <laughs> 